Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Jacinta Thompson and I'm the Executive Director of the Bob Hawke Prime Ministerial Centre at the University of South Australia. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that the land we meet on today is Ghana land. We wish to express our respect for the Ghana people, their elders and ancestors and acknowledge the spiritual and cultural relationship they have with their traditional land. So, the Hawke Centre is extremely proud to be presenting this year the International Women's Day Talks as part of WOM Adelaide's Planet Talks program. And as I said before, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all here this afternoon for our very first event with Jan Fran as she presents the International Women's Day Address. International Women's Day is a global day celebrating the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women. It's about unity, celebration, reflection, advocacy and action. Whatever that looks like globally at a local level. International Women's Day has been occurring for well over a century and continues to grow from strength to strength. So let us all make a difference. Make every day International Women's Day and let us ensure that the present and the future for all women is safe, equal, optimistic, respectful and fulfilling. So, now to introduce the wonderful Jan Fran. Walkley award-winning journalist and TV presenter, Jan Fran is best known for her works as host of The Feed and on Medicine or Myth, The Project and podcasts Sexism and the City and her, one of her new projects, The Pineapple Project. A frequent commentator on Q&A, ABC Breakfast, The Drum and Triple J's Hack, Jan is an ambassador for Plan International Australia, where she advocates on women's issues. Jan will also be later joined by Tori Shepherd, state editor of The Advertiser. So I wish you, everyone, a wonderful International Women's Day. Yes, yes. And please join me, a very warm welcome to Jan Fran. Thank you. South Australia, mate. Best state in the country. Hey, um, I just, I want to start on um, a slightly... I guess serious and personal note, I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. Um, and I just want to say, I find doing this a little bit fraught sometimes because I think how can you represent something so profound in just a few short sentences? So I want to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and it was never actually extinguished I want to acknowledge that only recently have I come to understand that we are living in an occupied territory. Um, and admittedly, I've never actually thought about Australia this way before, and I've never thought of myself as a settler. 
in an occupied land. And that's something that I'm contending with a lot more. I want to acknowledge the Uluru Statement from the heart for the gracious offering that it was, and I also want to acknowledge the way... Thank you. Uh, I also want to acknowledge the way that it was so disappointingly and swiftly uh, dismissed. Today on International Women's Day, I want to acknowledge the Indigenous matriarchy and the Aboriginal women who stand and who fight every day, every day. And who I have learned so much from. Um, I, I see you and I thank you. And I ask you today, leaving um, this talk, if you could think about one thing, and again, it's a question that I myself have been grappling with recently. What is your relationship to Indigenous sovereignty? And that's something that you can think about on your own time and sit with that as you will. And so as we stand here on the land of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains, I want to pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and I want to acknowledge that Australia always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you. All right, well, folks, the thing that I um, delayed clapping there, thanks, guys, yeah. What I wanted to talk to you today about is something um, that is fairly scary. It's so scary, actually, that the mere sight of it has um, some grown men cowering. The most powerful people in the world are at a bit of a loss as to how to deal with this truly terrifying thing. I've had people reach out to me personally, scared, out of their wits, babbling, incoherently. Because in recent years, we have come to understand that there is nothing more terrifying in this world, folks, than a teenage girl with opinions. <laughs> it's just terrifying stuff. It's truly. Let us not forget the terror inflicted upon the population when a teenager reads from a paper at a conference. Today on International Women's Day, I am here to spruik the power of girls. That's what I'm doing. Yes, 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 yes. Now, am I biased? Yes. But am I exclusionary? Also, yes. I am, I am indeed both of those things. And look, I'm very happy to talk about boys on International Men's Day. Um, which is literally any other day but today. <laughs> also, yeah. Um, now, the other day, I posted a, a picture on my Facebook page of Malala Yousafzai and Greta Thunberg. Yeah, so they had met for the first time. It was at Oxford. They took this photo together and they posted it. So just a bit of a recap. I'm sure you all know, but Malala at 15, um, she was shot by the Taliban and then she went on to become a global campaigner for girls' education. Greta, at 15, staged a solitary climate protest that we now know has had ripples right around the world. Um, at 15, I was eating glue. So, <laughs> hashtag goals. I saw them together and that photo just, it filled my heart with so much hope because I'm looking at this photo and I see 
their smiling faces, and there it is. It's like the power of girls. And then came the comments. <laughs> I'm not going to go into the comments because I don't want anyone to bleed from the ears this afternoon. We're all having a nice time. But the comment section anywhere it is really like... If the worst person you know was given some speed and like a thousand vuvuzelas and told that they are the most important person in the world. <laughs> that is the sound of a comment section anywhere. Dozens of comments just flooding in, denigrating the two girls to the point where I got a text from my mate at 10pm that just said, don't look at Facebook. <laughs> Which like on a list of texts to send someone at 10pm, don't send that. I was having a fine time. <laughs> Phone buzzes, I'll just check. Don't look at Facebook. I'm like, what happened? I'm cancelled. So, of course, I look at Facebook. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, like, what, what, what's going on here? I just, I posted a picture of two girls together having a nice time. What, what warrants all of these negative comments and it's something that we all have come to understand is a thing this person left one particular comment that said nothing like a Greta and Malala post to get Mars basement dwellers pounding their keyboards and yelling for meatloaf <laughs> it's just what happens and I'm thinking like were, were we are we not looking at the same photo here like had what had they seen that I hadn't particularly seen in that photo and then it, it just it dawns on me that we were looking at the same photo and actually we had seen the exact same thing. The haters saw what I had saw, what I had seen, and it was the power of girls. But instead of feeling hope, they felt fear. And instead of feeling buoyed, they felt apprehension. And instead of feeling encouraged, they felt threatened by that. And I thought, dang, man, if you're out here at 10 p.m. leaving comments on Jan Fran's Facebook thread, then you must really think that this girl can change things. Yeah. And, and, and I realised in that moment, like, whatever camp you belong to, whether you were afraid or whether you were hopeful, or whether you loved her or you didn't, whether you didn't love her, it was actually because we both knew the same thing to be true, and that is that girls really do have the power to change the world. And if this world... Thank you. Thank you, madam. You don't have to clap each time. It's a ripper speech, trust me. I mean, you can if you want to. But if you're quite happy living in this world as it is, if this world serves you, then of course you're going to attack anything that you see as a threat to that. So I have this theory. Um, it's just a theory. Let's talk later. Nobody at me. My theory is that the world is particularly afraid of the teenage girl. I think we're afraid of what they'll become and who they will turn into. And so we stunt them. And I think men are angry at Greta. It's not because she's talking about climate change and they don't think climate change is... I, I don't think it's that. I think it's because she's trying to dismantle a world that they built. 
a world of eternal economic growth. And I think they're mad because she has beaten the great rational man, the man of the enlightenment, at his own game, actually, by being far more rational in this instance than what he is. This is the power of Greta. And she's not quiet, and she's not docile, and she's not sexual, and she's not happy-go-lucky, and she's not seen and not heard. She's none of those things. She's none of the things that we demand of girls. And that is scary. I would urge you to pay close attention to the attacks on Greta and, and, and the shape and form in which they take. She's mentally unwell. She's hysterical. She's a child. So the infantilization which is the type of threats and attacks that have been levelled at women since time immemorial. And frankly, they're very boring. <laughs> like, <laughs> come up with some new shit, my dudes, you know? <laughs> for anyone getting too afraid, though, let me paint a clearer picture of the reality for girls in this world, yeah? Okay, have a guess what the leading cause of death for girls aged 15 to 19 is. Just have a think of it in your mind for a second. The leading cause of death for girls aged 15 to 19. It's pregnancy. Mm. Here we go. It's a roller coaster of emotions. 12 million girls a year are married before the age of 18. There are 650 million. 650 million women and girls alive today, worldwide, who were married before the age of 18. I can assure you, if not every single one of them was pulled out of school, if they were in school in the first place. There are 130 million children right now, so we're talking people under the age of 18, who are not in school and 70% of them are girls. If a family doesn't have enough money, they will send their son to school, not their daughter. In many cases, they do have enough money and they send their son anyway. Girls in emergency scenarios face particular hardships. I, I just, I want to, I know we don't really see Australia necessarily as an emergency scenario, but I think that we're, we underplay the degree to which emergency situations are happening around the world as we speak. Girls in these scenarios face particular hardships and they come from two things. One is the threat of sexual assault and two is pregnancy that then arises from that sexual assault. And then there's this. I, um, I lived in Bangladesh for a year in, uh, in 2011. Now, anyone who's been to Dhaka knows it's a very earthquake-prone city and some of the buildings they don't instill the greatest of confidence in one. Um, it's, it's a serious problem. There's, there's buildings there that are not so well built. And I was living with a group of Australians and I was sort of lounging on my bed, you know, flicking through a magazine or whatever, and I see uh, my bedside table make its way from one side of the room to the other side of the room. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that happen. Um, it's perplexing. And then very terrifying because you realise what's going on. It's an earthquake. So my housemate runs into the room. He says, it's an earthquake. We've got to get out of the building. And like flew would be an overstatement. We didn't fly per se down the stairs, but like we flew. Like my legs were airborne, you know. Earthquake, I'm getting out of here. So we're flying down the stairs. We're out in the street. The street's full of people. You know, and we're waiting for things to die down and for people to kind of assess what's going on. And I'm looking around, 
And I noticed something very, very peculiar. It's all men and boys. Not one single woman or girl is out in that street except for myself and the two other women that I lived with. And then you look up at the buildings and there, pressed to the windows, are all of the women and the girls. Because there's a lot of modesty reasons attached to that. Men are much more likely to go out into public space than what women are. Women tend to kind of wait a little bit behind until the situation is okay. So there's a lot of sort of cultural, logistical reasons. And you realise if that building had collapsed, they'd be the first to go. And this is something that you see played out in several sorts of emergency scenarios as such. This is the reality for women and girls around the world. And there are challenges that are specific to girls. Not women, not men, not boys, girls. Boys are not impacted by child marriage in the same way girls are. They're just not. They're not impacted by a lack of education in the same way girls are. That's not to say they're not impacted, but they're not impacted in the same way that girls are. They're not as impacted by a lack of voice and a lack of agency and a lack of access to public space in the same way that girls are. And these are just facts. You can feel about them however you want to feel about them. I don't care. <laughs> I don't want girls to have better outcomes than boys. But I do want that they have the same opportunity as boys. And I think when they, when they get that opportunity, we're all the better for it. So the World Bank estimates that a lack of education for girls costs countries between 15 and $30 trillion in lost lifetime productivity and earnings. How good's capitalism? <laughs> productivity! That's how we measure things. God, imagine all of the things that could have been made in that time. But you know what? We laugh, but if you don't want to invest in girls because it's right and because it's just, then heck, do it because it's economically sound. I don't care, just do it. And when I say invest in girls, yes, I mean countries and I mean leaderships and I mean not-for-profits and I mean charities, but I also mean you, each and every single one of you sitting here today. I was a girl once. <laughs> I feel like I need some wind chimes to play and take us back to that time, but... I grew up in a suburb called uh, Bankstown in Sydney's West. I don't know if anyone here is familiar with that. Right on. Thank you. Um, two people. That's sorry. You're good. You're good. And you. <laughs> is there anyone else from Sydney that wants to be acknowledged here today? <laughs> God, Sydney's not, they're insufferable, aren't they? <laughs> Love you guys. I grew up in a suburb called Bankstown um, in Sydney's west. Now, anyone familiar with that area will tell you it is the best suburb in Sydney to get both your upper lip and your car waxed at the same place. <laughs> so good. At one point, I was living in a house with my mum, my two sisters, my grandmother, my two aunts, a lady cat, and I was going to an all-girls high school. So, yeah, it's the estrogen ocean. Okay. Someone's into that. Also, there was my dad, who by that point had just like... He just slowly disappeared backwards into a hedge. Just... 
hoping no one would notice. Um, and look, no one did, but... <laughs> yes. Uh, my, my dad actually, he plays a very, very key role here. We're going to come back to him in a second. Because throughout this period, right, which was sort of my high school years, I actually had very little contact with boys for the aforementioned reason. To the point where even today, the teenage boy, it, 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 he's a bit of a mystery to me. You know, I, I asked my husband the other day, I said, what do teenage boys get up to? He said, uh, they get up to exactly what you think they get up to. <laughs> Which is studying, obviously, so congrats to them. I've always had really mixed feelings about that time because there is a part of me that wishes that I had gone at least to a co-ed school so that when I got to university, you know, boys weren't such a, a mystery to me because by that point, they were just, they were everywhere. They were just walking around... No one was telling him to get off the premises. <laughs> you know, Sister Mari wasn't there with a balloon putting it in between us when we got too close. <laughs> Which was a thing that happened at my high school discos. <laughs> yeah, let's not relive the PTSD from that, thank you. But actually, there is another part of me, and I think, I, think, I think ultimately this is the part of me that wins out, that is so eternally grateful to have had time in a world that belonged to women and girls. I grew up believing that the world was ours, because for a time it really was. How do we make every single girl believe that? I talked about my father earlier. We always sort of felt a bit sorry for my dad because, you know, he was the only guy in a house full of women. He had this extreme dad joke, which it wasn't funny, but it was hilarious because he thought it was so hilarious, which is the classic definition of a dad joke. And he'd just tell people all the time, he'd say, oh, yes, I live in hell because the letters of our first names... J-H-N and M, spelt the Arabic word for hell, which is jhannim. <laughs> so he'd just tell that joke to anyone. Even people who didn't speak Arabic just told them the joke and then, like, cacked himself. <laughs> and, of course, we cacked ourselves because he's ridiculous and that's a ridiculous joke. And I always thought, oh, look, Dad hates his life, lol, sucked in. But... He actually didn't. And, you know, we grew up, I grew up anyway, in a very kind of patriarchal, very masculine sort of community. My background's Lebanese, you know, they love boys. Oh, I love them. Um, <laughs> they're the best. And one time I asked my dad, I said, Dad, do you ever wish that you had sons instead of daughters? And he sort of looked at me a little bit perplexed and went, I already have sons. He said, I've got three sons. In my father's eyes, we were the same as boys. When I was 13, my dad said one of the most important things to me ever, that anyone has ever said to me. He said, now that you are 13, you don't have to ask my permission, only my opinion, if you want. 
And I thought, wow, this guy's insane. (laughs) I'm going to Jamboree, motherfuckers. I'm staying up past 10.30 p.m. and watching SBS. Yes, ma'am. But you know, it was this, it was this profound mental shift for me because suddenly my decisions were my own. And also my consequences were my own. I learnt from that to be independent and I learnt to own my mistakes and to trust my instincts. And I think that is what has made me who I am today. It's funny, I was reading a really great study, came out of the University of Queensland a few years ago. It looked at the trajectory of 30 male CEOs and 30 female CEOs. In a nutshell, basically the the male CEOs all came from these traditional middle class families. So the father was employed usually as a professional, the mother stayed at home, there wasn't a lot of disruption, they didn't move around too much. The women came from families where there was a lot of disruption. There was a death. There was a lot of moving. The father was usually self-employed. The mother always worked. They had to kind of uh, take on a a role where they were independent very quickly because of that disruption. But there was one line in that particular study that, that really kind of stayed with me. And this is a quote. Many of the female CEOs came from families in which all the siblings were daughters And so, as one respondent remarked, I became the surrogate son. And I thought, well, I'll be darned. Mr Francis, I think he knew what he was doing all along. That feeling of the world belonging to me, that I could do anything that a boy could do, it didn't necessarily come from being surrounded by women. It came from my father. And I had a cousin who came up to me once. She said, how do, I, how do I make my daughters as confident as you and your sisters? And I said, okay, Tammy, we're scared all the time, one. But two, treat them as you would your sons. It's science. The study's author concluded that the findings challenged the notion that solutions to gender equity should be focused on changing the business environment. They suggest that far greater attention needs to be placed on how we socialise and educate our children. And so that's why today on International Women's Day I wanted to talk specifically about girls because to invest in girls is ultimately to invest in women and that is to invest in half the world. And I wonder, actually, all the time, what this world would be like if those 650 million women and girls around the world were allowed to finish school instead of learning to wait within the walls of a collapsing building. Because girls learn quickly that the world does not belong to them. They learn to say no when they mean yes. We learn that our bodies belong to everyone else but ourselves. We learn guilt and shame We learn to walk through a world that belongs to men. And some of us walk through it just fine until we don't and the world caves in on us for being the wrong type of woman. We all know that we're here on a good behaviour bond. 
I came of age in the feminism of the 2000s, which, if any of you remember accurately, was really just a big hole filled with Paris Hilton's hair extensions <laughs> and some Girls Gone Wild DVDs, I think. That was it. Yeah, the height of female empowerment in the 2000s was lasering your pubes. And then, and only then, would you be left with this feeling, this feeling afterwards. Was it empowerment? No, it was a rash from <laughs> the lasering. Fact. We are living in very culturally different times, thankfully. The internet, I think, has given rise to voices previously buried, among them the voices of girls, Malala, Greta, Emma Gonzalez in the States. It's the girls here who are leading the school strike to climate, in Australia and around the world. It's girls in the Solomon Islands demanding an end to school fees. It's girls in India on a hunger strike to protest sexual harassment. It is girls that fill me truly with a hope for a better future. So to the girls here today, I would tell you what my father told me. Do not seek permission. It is already yours. But seek opinions of those around you. Seek to learn from everyone you can. Approach your life with curiosity. Approach a conversation thinking that you might be wrong. Own your triumphs and own your mistakes. Make the world better for the ones who come after you. And to the parents, teachers, uncles, cousins, friends, fathers, in this room today, I would say, invest in your girls. Show them that the world is theirs because they have the power to change it. And I think we all know that. Thank you. I'm Tori, I'm the state editor of The Advertiser. Language warning, that was fran fucking tastic. Oh, uh, if you read the comments, I'm a feminazi. Mm, Misandrous, all sorts of things. I'm gonna do something that is very not femo. We're gonna talk about your dress for a second. Oh, yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. So this is, this is a here tribute to South Australia. I know, it's one of the, it's, you can't, I would be offended if we didn't talk about the dress today. Um, we have a green frog cake. We have the Murray Mags. It says Suburban Trash, but we all know that's Farmers Union Ice Coffee. Shiraz. And you know what, there's no Fritz, but this is Fritz colour. It's a Fritz so colour. So there is kind of a Fritz tribute. And it's made by an artist who I call the, um, everyone's favourite Greek auntie from next door, Frida Las Vegas, who is an Adelaide uh, local through and through. She does now live in Sydney, regrets that every day. Um, <laughs> But she was the one who actually made this dress. And she does Australiana just so beautifully and so joyfully. So if you do like what I'm... I'm actually not here to plug her, by the way. I just, I just love her. I love her and I okay, love that she made Okay, now we're not talking this. about the fucking dress Okay, anymore, that's right? it. We're done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um, so we sat backstage and we came up with what we think is a new term. Are you decent there? I'm good, yeah. Good. Uh, vag washing. 
<laughs> no, go ahead, have a drink. Um, and it's because we were talking about how International Women's Day, which is today, has been hijacked, corporatized, picked up by people who want you to cook a batch of cupcakes and take them into the breakfast, because women have breakfasts, right? They have all these breakfast events because they've got to go and do the kid thing after school, right? Men have galas and balls and late night things with alcohol. Women take their own cupcakes to a breakfast. Badge washing. <laughs> if everyone, you know, everyone knows the term, right? Like you greenwash something to pretend that you're environmentally sound. You pinkwash it to say that it's actually about breast cancer when really, again, you're just about yeah. the capitalist system. So that's, that's what we were talking about earlier today. We're like, you know, it's not really pinkwashing, is it? Because it's not really whitewashing, is it? It's not really like... I'm like, it's badge washing. Badge washing. That's what it is. It's badge washing. I was like, does it sound a little douchey? And... <laughs> well... And lo and behold, it does. <laughs> and yet, we are going with it. Yeah. So, there is actually a fake website. It's like internationalwomensday.com that's set up by this brand marketing organisation. Uh, they have a theme for International Women's Day. Each is equal, which sounds like total bullshit. But what they're doing is they're taking away from the actual United Nations International Women's Day. Yeah. So... How do we screw these guys up? <laughs> How do we screw them up? I, I, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you that, but yeah. man, you better have an answer now. I think, I think it's, it's really important to um, just sort of be aware, first and foremost, that this is happening, because I think a lot of people don't know that this is happening. I didn't even know it was happening until someone pointed it out on Twitter. But there are two conflicting International Women's Days themes and ideas. And one, as Tori said, was set up by... A, a brand and a corporate, and the other one is the kind of the United Nations Women's Day. But I would go even further to say that they've both been to some extent co-opted because what International Women's Day is about was International Working Women's Day. So it was about women who work. Um, and, and I think to some extent that has been sort of forgotten a little bit. Um, I think as well what has been happening in, in recent years, and I've talked about the feminism of the 2000s, Feminism has become quite um, uh, lucrative. Corporations and companies can now trade off it, I think, in a way that they probably couldn't have done in, you know, 15 years ago. And so when it becomes lucrative, you, you want to appeal to as many people as possible, right? You want to make as much dosh out of it as possible. And so it essentially needs to be watered down a little bit. And I think that's kind of what's happened with... Um, International Women's Day and some of the messaging around International Women's Day. And I think this year has been a really, really clear example of that. That's not to say that there's no space for corporations, but I think just be aware of what kind of space they're occupying. Are they setting the agenda or are they supporting grassroots uh, uh, women? And that's, that's a, you know, that's, I think there's a lot of nuance there. But yeah, I mean, there's so much, I know I've this is PG, so please excuse me. There is so much corporate fuckery out there. It's just, it, like, no, babe, I don't want to sell your T-shirt because you've got the number of the wage gap on it. I don't want to do that. You know, I... They're literally coming up with the hashtags that mean nothing that are these... Yeah, and... <laughs> the main. Yeah. But the main issue with that kind of corporate culture, if you will, um, is that it sort of... It, it, it's... I don't think it could, have, it could exist in the way that it exists without the internet. So I think those two things sort of go hand in hand. And there have been a lot of studies, and not just around this particular issue, 
can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but studies that show that if you participate online in something, um, if you wear a T-shirt that has a hashtag, if you contribute your name to something online, if you... Slacktivism? It's not slacktivism per se. You, you feel as though you have contributed. And maybe you actually have made a meaningful contribution and you've said something important and you've taught someone something. But most people tend to go, all right, well, I've done feminism, thanks so much, right? But what actually needs... That, that is the tip of the, the iceberg. That's the froth of the beer. We need the beer here, people. What empowers women, ultimately, is policy changes. What empowers women is laws changing. Um, yes, cultural change is important, but all of this must be a means to an end. And I think the, bigger, the biggest problem that I see with it is when it becomes just an end in and of itself. So, are you saying when, like, a woman who's got a nanny and a cleaner ends up on, like, an ASX-listed board, that that's not really a pathway that's shining a light for young women? It's shining a light for some young women. It's probably not shining too much of a light for the women who are there, um, you know, babysitting your kids and cleaning your house. And, and there there's, have been very kind of interesting articles that have come out about this, of this kind of two-tier system of feminism, um, where... You know, you have because because women work. Really, everything would be solved if more men just got in the kitchen. Right. Like honestly, just get in there. You know, because what, what was Crabby's book? The Wife Drought. If you haven't we read need that wives. book, Annabelle Crabb wrote a book called The Wife Drought. It's such a good book. But it's because you know women have been uh, are now working, and of course men are working, and so you've got this kind of domestic sphere that you're like, okay, well we'll just put. Mm, slightly lower um, earner, lower earning women in these roles of domestication. Um, and I think we're doing that more and more. And it's, I think we, we should be definitely talking about how that's impacting those women as well. And so one of the things we should definitely talk about is the men. No, we're not. <laughs> that's right. But it was, I kind of frightened myself when we were talking backstage because I was like, don't we have to do like the hashtag not all men thing? And that's because every time we try and have a conversation about women, there's a bunch of men going, what about the men? So... Yeah. That's so boring. It's so boring. But is it radical now to say, yeah, we're not talking about the guys today? It's no, I don't think it's radical at all. I think feminists have been doing that for a really long time. It's like, come on. We, just, we need to change some laws here. Like, what are you, you know, like, I'm, I've, got a, I've got a goal. I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to fix society. You want me to talk about you? We can talk about you. Can we have one day, maybe, where we just talk about us? Like, just one day. Just one day. Today. That's it. It's not, you know, it... it, it and, 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 and then it's framed as though not talking about men is, like, exclusionary or, or... This is insanity. We just want one day to be able to process what the world is like for women. And I think men play a very important role here. Um, and actually, I think that there is a conversation to be had about men. And, and, and feminists have been having that conversation for a really long time. But the people who haven't been having that conversation are men. Okay? So don't... No, no, this is, this is a serious thing. Don't, don't come at me. Like, <laughs> we've been talking about men for a really long time. I think, you know, feminism has been exploring what it means to be a woman that's all we do, girl. Like, honestly, that's all we do. That's what feminists do. We explore what it means to be a woman. You know, we, we've had that, the, the feminine mystique moment. Men haven't had a masculine mystique. And their roles as the traditional provider and the protector, they are eroding. And this is a serious thing. I don't scoff at that. 
And I don't, I don't laugh at that and I don't make light of that because I think that that is a serious thing. So talk about it. The onus is on you to do it any other day but today, though. Right. Today is about the girls. Yeah. Um, so with the vag washing, right, because I can't say that word enough. I'm going to say it all day. I'm just going to get drunk and say vag washing like 20 times in a sentence. <laughs> um, I was thinking one of the problems is it makes feminism polite and people-pleasy. And one of the issues that a lot of women face that is indoctrinated in us from when we are girls is to be nice and polite. And, you know, I've been doing this thing where you try and rewrite your email. So you're not saying, could I just have a, and if you don't mind, and could I please? So are you a people pleaser? I mean, um, obviously today has been fabulous, but you know, <laughs> do, do you fall over yourself to like make sure that everyone's okay? No. And how do you, do you it's born like that? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, um, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I don't, I don't really need people to like me. This is actually a rare thing, I think, for a lot of women. Women spend a lot of time trying to be liked, making sure everyone's okay. Has everyone got what they need? Is the, is the, is the toilet clean? Are the cookies baked? Have I got the cupcakes on? Are they fucking pink? Yeah, like, don't get me wrong. Like, if you come over, I'm catering, like, tubs of hummus, you know, just to make sure that there's stuff there. And I do have an aneurysm if there's not enough stuff. I think that's more just, like, a my mother thing rather than being a woman thing. But I don't, I don't actually really need people to like me. I just need, if you don't like me, to leave me alone. <laughs> That's, if you don't like me, I'm happy for you to leave me alone. No problem. I don't need you to like me. I don't, if you don't like me, odds are I don't particularly like you. Fantastic. We just kind of keep out of each other's way. That's okay. Um, and I think as well, you know, I, um, I, I, I grew up with fantastic parents and I grew up with a really kind of tight-knit family. And the people, you know, there's people who are really important to me and... They like me, I think. <laughs> so um, that's, that's kind of enough for me. But yeah, we are, we are taught to, I think, um, please and, and be sweet and be docile. You know, I have friends now who have a, and you've got the same thing, they've got a daughter and they're trying not don't to constantly... Don't have a daughter, by the way, just in case anyone was surprised by that. What's that? It's my niece. Oh, no, I was just, like, just in case anyone thought I had a yeah. daughter, that would be weird. <laughs> she does not have a daughter, she has a niece. But they're, they're trying very much to kind of, like, not continuously tell her, oh, you look so pretty, and have their cousins and friends and family, oh, you look so pretty in your dress, you're so pretty, you're so pretty, you know, just because, they, one, telling a child that they're pretty one time, that's fine. Girls hear that a thousand times to the point where it just becomes internalised, we know this. So if you're conscious of that happening, you kind of have to make a conscious effort to rein back on it. And I know people who are sort of trying to do that now. And yeah, so they hear it 20 times a day, but then they also hear the absence when someone doesn't say, oh, you look so pretty. Yeah. And that's where the, well, what's wrong? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So everyone, we're going to throw out to audience questions. So, uh, you know, we could, we could go, or I could go all day. I kind of don't want to give you guys the floor, but I have to, it's part of the rules. So, <laughs> I want to just take you back to last year when the Prime Minister gave the International Women's Day speech and he said, yeah, 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 women should totally have a chance, just as long as it's not at anybody else's expense. Yeah. <laughs> Does somebody have to pay for this equality shit? Does somebody have to pay for it? Pay for it, yeah. I mean, there's only so many positions in Cabinet. Right. I mean, look, you know, he said, like, as long as some men don't lose their job, sorry, they will. 
They just will. There's only so many positions in cabinet. If you have more women vying for positions in cabinet, there's going to be more women in cabinet, meaning that there's going to be less men in cabinet. Like, in that particular circumstance. And that's just, that's, that is what's going to happen in that particular circumstance. The problem is not that now there's more women in cabinet. Like, you know, that, that kind of comes down to the, the question around quotas. Like, should we have quotas? Should we, the people who are, like, totally against quotas... For me, it's like, guys, you should just be happy that we want equality and not revenge. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're out here taking it easy, you know what I mean? If we really wanted to play, we'd want a 100% quota. You know why? Because men have had a 100% quota for about 2,000 years. Like, is, is, am I wrong? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Like, we, we've only just gotten into the workforce. Really, this has been relatively new. The last century, women have only just really started getting into the workforce. And now we're like, yeah, we kind of want equal participation in the workforce. And everyone's like, what? That's insane, is it? Seems pretty rudimentary to me. I don't know, like, I don't understand. And we'll never get it, we'll never get equal participation in the workforce until we have equal participation from men in the home. They're two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. So I'm going to start a company called Vag Washing, and then I'm going to take pretty much everything you say and put it on T-shirts made <laughs> in a Bangladeshi... Slave sell warehouse. It and sell it at a premium cost. It's so and hard. Like, call I'm, it like organic and ethical. Let me just say, I'm not a, I'm, I'm really not a role model feminist of any kind. Please do not role model me, because if someone pays me enough money, I probably will wear a t-shirt on Instagram. Like, that's that's extremely disappointing. But let me just be real here for a second. If someone's like, hey, here's like fifty thousand dollars, I'd be like, girl, you can pay my body for that money. You know, um, it's it's a, it's a very difficult line to tread. Like, I'm a not to make this about me or my situation, but it's, it's I think something... Everyone that, is actually here for you. It's sure, okay, okay sure. <laughs> um, you know, you, you sort of think about, like, weighing these things up, you know, corporate interests around feminism, like, if someone asks me to speak at International Women's Day and it's a corporate, is that, do I take the money? But if I don't take the money, shouldn't I be paid for a job that I do and that I'm quite good at? But then if I'm paid for a job that I do and I'm quite good at, am I watering down? Like, I <laughs> go through... That's... It's like a hamster up in here, just spinning, you know. And the emails come in going, but Jan Fran, what about the exposure? Can you work for free? I mean, this is yeah. one of the things that a lot of... I will yeah, say, I've... I have worked for free um, a lot of times. And I will say to anyone, you know, when you're young, there is a time to work for free, and then there's a time to tell people to get fucked. <laughs> and... Yep, and you, and, and, and you have to know... Um, you, you have to draw that line yourself. I think people will exploit you. Um, and I think sometimes if, if you are a, 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 is in the public sphere, or sometimes it doesn't really even have to be front-facing, and people say, you know, this, it's, this is for exposure, or this will get you into a room where you meet other people, it's for networking, you go, okay, well, this is, gonna, this is beneficial to me in some way. But that's a trade that you have to make with yourself, I think. Um, and everybody has to make that trade. But I would not say don't work for free. Um, I did work for free, and I think that helped me in many ways, but then I also, um, I, I would like to think that the, the workforce or the workplace that you work in is robust enough to be able to say, okay, you should be getting paid. You know, you need those mentors at the top that go, hang on, you're not getting paid for this, and you've been here from this time to this time? No. And, and actually kind of empower people in that position to then either ask for money or quit. Yeah. 
learn when to tell people to go and get fucked. Okay, audience questions. Um, come on, people. I think we've got a couple of microphones going around. I can see a hand. You may not have a... Uh, can you throw from there? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> if you can shout, I can probably repeat it. <laughs> have people be able to... <laughs> it's like having an ice cream shoved in your face. Um, to have power without it being given to them. Yeah, it's also like active versus yeah. passive, right? Yeah. So, yes, you know, do you need other people to empower you? How do you learn to actually take that power for yourself? And you were just talking about mentors, and that's completely and utterly true, but what if you don't have them? What if you need to kind of take the power for yourself? Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a really hard one. Like, on a, on a kind of a macro scale, it's like... You know, you look at the kind of the suffragette movement or the movement around um, women's rights and women's libs. It's like you kind of have you, you have to take like that power is never going to be handed to anyone on a silver platter and, and you know have people saying, "Oh, you want to vote now? Sure, no worries. Yeah, great. Come on in. You know, you can all vote. Oh, sorry, Aboriginal. Off you go. Yeah, and that's and that's the other thing. Like when when women got the vote in Australia and everywhere really, like women got the vote in Australia. Aboriginal women didn't get the vote in Australia. They did not get the vote in Australia. They didn't get the vote in Australia until the late 60s. Dear God, and someone posted on Twitter today: if 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 the most embarrassed you have ever felt to be Australian is because of the toilet paper crisis, then girl, your eyes are closed. <laughs> you know, you need to open your eyes because we've had some some pretty bad scenes in this country. Um, but. Yeah, don't get me started on that. What was the question? Yeah. That's, yeah. You kind of got there, but let's like turn it around a little bit. So, International Women's Day, the proper one, the real one, not the brand marketing corporatization bastard bitch, is talking about women around the world. It's talking about checking your privilege. It's talking about structural socioeconomic inequality. And it's kind of great for us to be up here being like, yeah, empower yourselves. But what should women be aware of in terms of helping those who are not enjoying the most expensive beer garden in the world. Yeah. I think, again, like, what I find what empowers women is policy and what empowers women is laws and what empowers women are, um, you know, policies within organisation. Um, yeah, let me think about that one. I just... I, I, I think sometimes... Fem feminism, feminism, the w women's movement, women's rights can be such a big mammoth thing, you know. There's so many different facets to it. There's so many different um, parts of it that you can be invested in. It's so big, but I would say think small. Think about how you can affect change in your home is so principally important, um, in your home but in your workplace. Think of collectivising how you can show solidarity with other women because it's a lot harder to get something done when it's just one person. But when one person over here and one person over here and one person over here and one person comes together, you're a much stronger force and then you support each other when things don't go in your favour because sometimes it's very hard to stand up to someone in a workplace if you don't feel like you have a support network. So a support network is really, really important and I think that's something that the internet has done, um, you know, for all its ills, I think it's done quite well in galvanising kind of um, particular communities together around certain issues. But think small. So, for example, for me, I think of something like um, Scandinavia's parental leave policy right? In Finland, for example, well, in, in, let, let's talk about Sweden very quickly. Um, 
in Sweden, they give... Uh, they have very generous parental leave policy, I grant you. They pay a lot more tax. Very generous. Um, but they give a mandatory three months to the man. Mandatory. Mandatory. However, no, no. I mean, the, the, the three months is there for men. Now, you can choose to take it or you can choose not to take it, right? But, hey, man, the government's out here giving you three months money to spend with your kid, most men go, well, I've got this three months, I may as well use it. So what ends up happening is they take the three months off and spend time at home. So in workplaces, an employer goes, all right, well, the man's is likely to take leave anyway, so hiring him and hiring a woman is kind of going to be the same thing because you don't know who's going to end up looking after the baby. In Finland, and somebody fact-checked this, I'm not 100% sure, they give parental leave to the child and they give two years parental leave. One for one parent, one for another parent, right? It's usually, you know, a heterosexual couple principally, but one year for one, one year for the other. And they can only take a year maximum. So what ends up happening is they go, okay, well, I've got a year and I've got a year, so you take the first year and I'll take the second year. And so you have both parents who take time off to spend time with their children. And suddenly the workforce evens up because, again, it's either men or women who will go off to look after children. And that, that is a policy decision. Like, there are people who read some very boring legal documents and went, yeah, this is what we're doing. And that's what empowers women. That's what changes society. Um, side note, there was actually a study done in Spain oh. where they gave, like, parental leave to the men and the men who took parental leave were like, yeah, I don't want any more kids. <laughs> because <laughs> when they had to juggle work with looking after a young child, yeah. they were like, this is bullshit, man. And I'm yeah. getting judged for leaving on time. When I go back to work, I'm getting judged for not being a president. I'm failing at work. I'm failing at life. Who would do this? The yeah. women. Exactly. And look, I don't blame men, particularly in Australia. We've got, like, our, our numbers are terrible. You know, we... The, the secondary partner gets like two weeks from the government. I don't blame men for not taking parental leave in that environment. It's a difficult thing to do. And there's a lot of stigma still in workforces around men taking time off to spend time with their family. And so they go, oh, you know, I just, I would rather just avoid that. We've got this set up. It's fine. And they're, not ba they're not bad dudes, you know. They're just, it's, we don't make it easy for them. And we have to start thinking about the ways in which we can do that. Alrighty, audience. Uh, hello. I'm here. Oh, good. Hi. <laughs> right. Hello. That was marvellous. It was like this kind of projected I am from voice. Chile, South America, very far away. And um, obviously the reality back there in South America is such a different from here. But uh, I would like to know what feminism is doing for the empowerment of uh, Aboriginal women here. Because for me, I have been here almost three months. And that impacts me a lot. Like, you don't see white people hanging out with the black fellas or whatever you call them. And that's so weird for me. I saw that you Australian were more advanced on that. I mean, every time that you see Australia, it's like a, a first country. And maybe you are, but I don't know. I mean, is there any Aboriginal person here, for instance? Oh, they certainly yeah. are at WOMAD, but you're completely correct. We've got an appalling history. We've got a, an existing human rights crisis with how Australia is dealing with the Aboriginal population. 
And then every time somebody tries to structure... Oh, the question's for you. I'm just the host. Sorry. I no. <laughs> no, please. Go. Um, <laughs> really you know, I, I think I'm, I'm so glad that you asked that question and I'm so glad that you... Uh, yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. Great question. And I'm so glad that you are from somewhere else because you're able to kind of come in and, and just see... How, how things are with, you know, not, not having necessarily lived the experience here and that sometimes provides the most clarity. Um, we have a big problem with that and particularly in, in, within feminism. There is a woman called Aileen Morton Robinson. I don't know if anyone has heard of Aileen. She is extraordinary. She wrote this book called Talking Up to the White Woman, yeah? And she, she's the first, I believe, distinguished Indigenous professor uh, in Australia. Um, she, talk, she wrote a book called Talking Up to the White Woman. She wrote this book 20 years ago. Last year was the first time ever that she was invited to talk about that book in a mainstream feminist conference. Yeah. And she, she told me that herself um, last year. And I was, I was flabbergasted, but then actually I wasn't. Because that is, that is where we are. In, in Australia in terms of listening to Indigenous women. And that is like the first step is listening to Indigenous women and getting behind them. Not in front of them, not next to them, getting behind them. Because they've been trying to... Like, imagine that this woman has been, has been trying to tell us this thing that we've only now discovered to be terribly important that we have to talk about it. She was, say, she was talking about it 20 years ago, you know? And, and I think that there's a deliberate... Um, just um, pushing to one side of, of Indigenous issues. And I, I feel like, I hope that's changing. And again, the internet has provided voices for particularly Aboriginal women. God, there are just so many baller Aboriginal women online. Like, I don't know if you guys are on Twitter. There's so many, um, I, I, you know, I just, I, I learn from them infinitely. But yeah, it's, it's a real great shame. In Australia. I, I'm, I'm sorry I don't have a better answer to that question. It is our national shame. Uh, now, we are running out of time, so well, I'm just going to finish up by revealing... You can only have a yes or no question. We have three seconds. Okay. Um, South Australia is waiting for abortion law reform to get out of the criminal code. I just have to say, we talk about rights, but we're still living where women's bodies in South Australia are in the criminal code, and I just think people need to be aware of it. New South Wales changed... Last right, week? We will go and have this conversation at the I know. Bar. It's it about go? rights, though. So I just no, say yes, that. Good point. And it's totally yes. valid. It's totally valid. It is just a timing thing. And I wanted to quickly wrap up by saying uh, backstage, I'm just going to reveal a completely secret conversation we had backstage where I was like, we need to talk about Indigenous women. And Jan Fran's answer was, don't, like, let's not be white women on stage talking about black women. Like, if they're not here in the conversation, do we have that? Right, so it's amazing that the question got asked and we had the chance to... Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm really glad the question got asked. And with that, everybody, happy vag washing. <laughs> <laughs> Go out, enjoy the rest of Woe Adelaide. Thank you very much to the Hawk Centre who put this on today and big ups for Jan Fran. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Have a great Woe